Well, what feels like a long time ago, we began in Ezekiel chapter 1 with Ezekiel having a vision from God, a vision of God. Ezekiel, being a, a Jewish priest, he should have been there in the temple in Jerusalem, but he wasn't. Instead, he was far away from home. As you know, he was a prisoner, a captive in Babylon. You see, because of Judah's sin, because of their rebellion against God, God was disciplining his people. And he sent many of them, including Ezekiel, into captivity, into the, the land of Babylon. And by the way, those were the fortunate ones, the ones in Babylon. Because almost all of the people who were left in Jerusalem, eventually they would be wiped out when the city and the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians. As we've seen, as we've studied our way through the book of Ezekiel, the book itself is a series of messages and visions that God gave his prophet Ezekiel to pass along to God's people. And in these messages and in these visions, God confronted their sin. And God announced his severe but righteous judgment against them. God was going to give his people. He was going to give their land. He was going to give the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself into the hands of their enemies. Even worse than that, far worse than that, God was going to remove his presence from the temple. Their unrepentant sin was driving God's glory away from them. Certainly, that was the low point of the book. That was the low point of, a, of Ezekiel's ministry. There in chapters 10 and 11, when Ezekiel sees God's glory departing from the temple and then from the city. I don't know, maybe, maybe to you that doesn't seem like it was such a terrible thing. But it was. Think about the context. Think about this for a moment. Colossians 1.16 tells us very clearly that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and all things were created through him and for him. So what we're told there, what Paul is saying is that you and I, that all of humanity, we were created by God and we were created for God. We were created to dwell in his presence, to worship him, to know him, and to be known by him. That, dear friends, is our purpose. That is what we were made for, for relationship with God. And the Jews, they had experienced that in ways that, frankly, no one else had. They had the temple and its sacrifices. And they had the abiding presence of God there within the Holy of Holies. But when God withdrew, when God pulled back from the temple, when the temple was then destroyed, that very real, palpable, concrete way of experiencing God's presence, in that very awful moment, it all came to an end. 
their worship in the temple, the offering of the sacrifices, their service to the Lord, the fact that they could actually literally see the cloud of God's glory fill the temple, all of that ended. Now, thankfully, Ezekiel's message, his story doesn't end there. Through Ezekiel, God promises his people, uh, these captives, that he isn't done with them, that he has not discarded them. God was going to judge their sin, no doubt. He was going to wipe out the nation. But eventually, Eventually, he would rebuild them, both nationally and individually. Ezekiel tells us that individually, God promised to give them new hearts and to put his spirit within them, to breathe new life into them. And nationally, God promised to bring them back into the land once again to be his nation, to be his people, and that he would give them a new temple where the glory of his presence would stay. The final 10 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, those are really the high point of of Ezekiel's message. Especially these last few chapters that promise that God's glory will once again come and this time it will stay there in this new temple, in the new city of God, in the midst of his people. And that this time, because God has given them new hearts and because God has put his spirit within them, they won't drive God's presence away with their sin. Instead, they will enjoy it like never before. They will live as a nation that is centered on the holiness of God. They'll live as a nation centered on the holiness of God. So, What Ezekiel describes physically and literally in these final chapters is a nation that is God-centered. That's really what we want too, isn't it? We want to be a people. We want to be individuals whose lives are centered on the Lord. We want to live out what the Lord has commanded us in Matthew 22. Remember there, verse 37. Jesus says this, love the Lord your God. How? with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus is saying, I want you to love the Lord with everything you've got. I want this to be the core thing, the central thing, to be the thing that you're passionate about. We are to love God with everything we've got, and that means that the Lord is going to be central in our lives. So this morning, As we look at the last few chapters in Ezekiel, chapters 45 through 48, as we finish out our study of this Old Testament prophet, though our context is different, our goal is the same. And I think we'll be helped in our pursuit. Chapter 45. Now that the Lord has returned Israel to their land, verse 1. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district. 
Now we'll see later that this holy district, this, this area that God, he puts it right in the middle of the nation. It's central. Half the tribes above, half the tribes below. And I think there's a lesson there if we will take it. I think there's a concept there that we can see. God put his temple in the middle. He made it central. It wasn't out of the way or hard to find. It was right there in the middle. Because it was to be first. You know, I kind of wonder, we, we step back, if we look at the site plan of the nation of Israel that God determines here, the temple is central. What's central in our homes? What is the center? What is the focal point? What does the layout of our living space communicate about what we value? Think about that for a minute. Think about your living room. Think about the, the space that you and your family live in. What is the center point of that? Now, I'm not saying that you're either holy or carnal based upon the arrangement of your furniture. But I think it's something that's worth thinking about. Because even the small things, they influence us. They shape us. They shape how we spend our time and what we give ourselves to and who we become. Well, this holy district, partway through verse 1, it shall be holy throughout the whole extent. It shall belong to the whole of the house of Israel. And then down in verse 7, and to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district. This is no small area. He describes the, the extent of it. It's about 64 square miles that is set apart for the worship of God. It's the middle section there that is about 25 square miles that is for the Levites. And above that is an area about the same size for the priests. Uh, that's also where the temple is. And then the bottom strip, about 13 square miles, that's reserved for the holy city itself. And then finally to the east of this space and to the west of it on either side is an area for the prince, for the ruler. So partway through verse 8, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. This says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. So the Lord begins to lay out some concepts here. He begins to paint a picture where very clearly righteousness and not personal interest reigns supreme. It isn't the, the prince, it isn't the governing authority's interests that will be supreme, but rather God's righteousness. No more will the royal ruler have the power to force the people from their land. Uh, bit by bit, we will see that God is reshaping their core pursuits. He's changing what's central instead of self-interest being central. Now the pursuit of the kingdom of God is going to be the thing that is central. And here for the prince, that means no more forcing people off of their land to build up his own kingdom. Verse 13, this is the offering that you shall make. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince. 
It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. So the people are to give their portion of the offerings to the prince, to the ruler. And then the prince will provide the annual festival offerings for the entirety of the community as they worship God together. And so we see the people submitting to the prince and the prince serving the people. Neither one looking for their advantage, but both looking for greater opportunity for God to be worshipped and for his kingdom to be built. The prince, the, their leader, he isn't there to seek after his own glory or pleasure. Uh, the people, they're not there to pursue just the, the thing of their own life, but rather the leader leads the people in worshiping God and the people follow the leader in worshiping of God. You know, that's, that's how it's supposed to be in the church too, isn't it? Right? That's true for any of us who serve in leadership. Truly, that's not just to be a phrase that we use that we serve in leadership, but we are truly, if we lead, to be those who serve. Jesus says in Luke twenty two twenty six that the one who leads must be the one who serves. The one who leads is the one who serves. Leadership in God's kingdom isn't about getting personal advantage or or recognition, but rather it's about sacrificing self for the advancement of God's kingdom. Verse 18, thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bowl from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. And then in verse 20, you shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance so that you shall make atonement for the temple. Verse 21, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of Passover. And for seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. On, the day that the prince, on that day, the prince shall, shall provide for himself and for all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival, seven young bulls and seven rams on each of the seven days and a male goat daily for the sin offering. And in the seventh month, chapter or verse 25, and on the 15th day of the month, and for seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil. So here at this, this new temple, there will be a lot of animal sacrifice. Sacrifices that, as we have talked about, remind them of Christ's sacrifice in our place, that remind them of the cost of the sin. Because remember, this temple is post-cross, not pre-cross. And so these sacrifices point to the price that was paid by Jesus in our place. One last time, let me point us to Hebrews chapter 10. There, you can read the passage of verse 10 through verse 16. It makes it very clear, animal sacrifices cannot save. Rather, the writer of Hebrews says there, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, speaking about the priests there at the temple in that day, stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, and catch this phrase, for all time, for all time, 
a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time. Not only for us who come after the cross, but for those who went before as well. These sacrifices that we read about here that will come at the end times, these sacrifices at this still future temple, they point back to the cross, just like the sacrifices that were made before the coming of Christ pointed forward to the cross. No animal sacrifice can save someone from their sin, but only the ultimate price that was paid by our Savior can purchase our redemption. Chapter 46, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened. And on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Uh, the prince shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer the, his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of the gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moons. In verse 4, the burnt offerings that the prince offers the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And then verse 6, on the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish. So notice this, here they come together to the, to the temple compound. They gather in that outer court just outside of the eastern gate that leads into that inner court where the altar is and, and the building of the temple where the glory of God resides. And the prince and the people come together to worship. There they, they come before that inner eastern gate in full sight of the altar of sacrifice. And from there, just past the altar, they can see the temple building where the glory of God abides. But notice that the gate, this eastern gate that they look through, it is only open when there's a sacrifice. They only get to see into the glory of God. They only get to enter into the presence of God when there is a sacrifice upon the altar. Otherwise, the gate is closed. The prince and the people can only come near to God with a sacrifice. We get that, don't we? We understand that. We can never come in our own righteousness. We never measure up. But we can only come to the Lord in the blood of Christ. We can only come by the grace of God extended to us because of Christ's death in our place upon the cross. We can't draw near to the Lord except through the cross. I think we will do well to always start there. When we pray, when we worship, when we open the word, to start by remembering the cross and by remembering the fact that we come by grace, by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 9, when the people of the land can't come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. And no one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered. 
but each shall go out straight ahead. Now you remember the, the temple compound had three gates, but the eastern outer gate remained closed. Only the Lord went through that gate. When his presence entered the temple, that gate was closed. And so now the people could come and go through the north gate and through the south gate. There was no western gate. But here the Lord says that if you come in from the north, you go out through the south. If you come in from the south, you must go out through the north. Now, please understand this. Our job as we try to understand what, what God's word is telling us isn't to just come up with or make up some sort of reason for God or, or to, to discern some sort of mystical spiritual lesson for every detail that is here revealed. You know why Ezekiel wrote this down? Because that's what they did. This is what God told them. This is what I want you to do. But I want you to notice this. God doesn't tell us why. God doesn't assign some meaning to this. And so we need to be cautious. Oh, was it because it just helped with the traffic flow? Kind of kept things moving along nicely. Well, maybe. Oh, was it because, you know, it... In a sort of a, a spiritual way, no one should leave the temple the way that they came in. They should go out changed. Oh, that's kind of a nice thing, but we don't know that. Was it because that by entering from one side and exiting the other, they all had to go past that eastern gate? They all had to go past that place where they could see the altar. Oh, was that why? Well, I like that idea, but it doesn't say the things that we read here, and especially as we get further on in these chapters, they may remind us of certain spiritual truths that are, are valid and that are sound, but we've got to be careful. It's helpful to be reminded of these things, but these passages certainly don't teach many of those things. If God doesn't say why he does these things, we need to be careful of giving our own reasons for him. Well, verse 13, you shall provide a lamb, a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning, you shall provide it. This is a perpetual statute. So that reminds me of a spiritual truth here. It's not a spiritual truth that is taught by this passage, but I think it's one that fits with it. Notice this, their sacrifices were not just annual. It wasn't just seasonal or occasional. They were continual. Daily, there were sacrifices. Weekly, on the Sabbath. Monthly, on the new moon. It was a continual thing. Their worship was ongoing. It wasn't just occasional. It was regular. It was daily. It was habitual. Isn't that what we need to? Isn't that how it needs to be for us as well? Verse 16, thus says the Lord God. If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty or to the year of jubilee. That, remember that, that's that thing where every 50th year, all property would, would return to the family to whom God had given it. All debts would be canceled and, and all indebted slaves would be set free. And then it says, 
Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. And then it says this, the prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. So the land itself, which, think about this, this was the main source of wealth. The land itself could not be permanently sold. It would always eventually revert back to the family to whom God had given it. And so there couldn't be any perpetual land barons, nor could there be anyone who was perpetually poor. And that dynamic changed things. That dynamic changed how people would live. Think about this. You, you look at these chapters and they're so full of so many disparate details. Have you ever looked at an impressionist painting? That's, you know, one of those fancy paintings in a museum that if you get too close, it's all fuzzy and furry and you think, this guy wasn't very good. I mean, he couldn't even get it so it wasn't blurry. But then what do you do? You step back and you gain some perspective and you look at the big picture together and you begin to see a beautiful thing that has been laid out for you. And with these chapters, really, if we, if we get too close to the details, it seems like they're all disconnected. But what the Lord is doing here is he is changing what is central. He's changing what they're pursuing with their lives. So often we spend our lives trying to accumulate and so what is the Lord doing bit by bit? He's putting a new center in. He's removing this dynamic where we're all about accumulation. You say, hey, you can accumulate what you want. Guess what? It's all going back to who it came from. Yeah, you, you can wheel, you can deal, you can wheedle, you can work. But when that year comes, that year of Jubilee comes, oh, when that year of liberty comes, guess what? It all goes level again. It all goes level again because your life is not about accumulation. Our life is to be about building the kingdom of God, not building our kingdom. So you and I, we, we operate under a similar dynamic. The Lord uses a slightly different um, way of getting us to this place. Um, we often talk about 2 Peter chapter 3. There in verse 10, where the Lord reminds us that his day, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns and brings judgment to this earth, that it will come like a thief. In other words, it will come without warning. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So instead of everything returning to its original owner every 50th year, the Lord reminds us that one day, without any warning, he will return. And on that day, the stuff of this world will reach its expiration date. It, it, it'll be done. All the stuff that's been gathered, all the stuff that's been accumulated, will all be gone. Dear friends, we need to remember that. We need to remember that this life is not supposed to be about building wealth, getting ahead, or even leaving your legacy. This life is not about you leaving a legacy. This life is about you 
furthering the kingdom of God. That is the only truly imperishable investment that exists. You go talk to an investment counselor, one of these, one of these guys who, who deals with the money, and they'll tell you about the safe investments and the, the ones that are going to last. And, oh, if you put it in bonds, you'll never lose. Well, <laughs> on that day, you'll lose. There is only one investment that is imperishable. And that is why Jesus in Matthew 6 tells us what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom because that is the only thing that will last forever. Verse 19. Then he brought me to, and skip down part with you, verse 20, the place where the priests boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out to the outer court and so to transmit holiness to the people. So his guide brought him to the place where the, the priests cook the offerings there within the inner court. And then he brought me to the outer court and he led me around to the four corners of the court, verse 24, partway through. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple, the Levites, shall boil the sacrifices of the people. So here again, he, he points to these places, one in the inner and one in the outer, where the offerings are, are, are prepared to be consumed so that they are not taken out. And he uses this phrase that I think is so interesting, so that they don't transmit holiness to the people. What is he talking about? Doesn't he want people to be more holy? No, that is what he means. That is what it's about. God is, is concerned, and we see it again here, with the separation, the distinction, the clarity between that which is holy and that which is common. That matters to God. It mattered to him then and it matters to him today. And dear friends, we are his. We are his. And because we belong to him, and because we have been changed by him, we are to be separate. We are to be that which is holy. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, that's what we're aiming at, right? That, that's what the aim of all of this is about. That was what, what God wanted at the very beginning. That's what he is, he is planning for the end here in Ezekiel. But look at what the result of that is. He says, therefore, because God is going to dwell among you, if you want God to dwell among you, look at this. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Dear friends, we are supposed to be different from this world. Now, don't misunderstand this. We are supposed to reach out to this world. We are to even to go out and live amongst the lost. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. And what does an ambassador do? He lives in a foreign land. We are to live out amidst this world. But we are to be missionaries in this lost world. We are to be different from this lost world. If we belong to Christ, we must be different from those around us. And so we must be careful. We must be careful not to give ourselves 
to the things that this world gives itself to. We must be careful not to give ourselves to the sin that the world around us gives himself to. Our culture may mock us, they may tempt us, or they may simply think that we're odd. But we can't join the world. Because we're to be separate. We're to be set apart for him and for him alone. Chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. Verse 2. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and behold, the water was trickling out, going eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand, and it was waist deep. And he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. So now Ezekiel sees a, a river whose source is the temple itself. He, a river that inexplicably, miraculously gets deeper and stronger as it goes. A river that, that is a source of blessing to all of Israel. And remember... Its source is the temple. This, this source of blessing for all of Israel doesn't come from the king's palace. It doesn't come from the marketplace. It doesn't come from any place else. It comes from the temple of God. And look at what this water does. Look at what its impact is. Verse 8. This water flows toward the eastern region. That's a desert. It goes down into the Arabah. And enters the sea. By the way, that's the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Literally, the water will be healed. And partway through verse 9, there will be very many fish. You know what there is none of in the Dead Sea today? Fish. Now, it's not truly a Dead Sea. There's microorganisms abundantly in the Dead Sea. But there's nothing you can eat for dinner. There's nothing that can provide sustenance or blessing to people. And so he says that when this water that flows out from the temple reaches the Dead Sea, it will become fresh water and there will be many fish. And verse 10, fishermen will stand beside the sea. In verse 11, yet its swamps and marshes will not become fresh for they are left for salt. Salt, by the way, is a very good thing. They needed salt. It was a great resource, is today a great resource for the nation of Israel. Verse 12, and on the banks, back to that river, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Trees growing in the desert, and their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because of the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. This river that flows out of the temple, it's a picture for us of the fact that God himself is the source of life, of vitality, of, of all that his people need. James 1.17 puts it this way, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's, that's what Ezekiel is saying here pictorially for us, the blessing, it comes from God. 
He provides for us. You know, in all of her history, the city of Jerusalem has never had a river to provide abundant water. But when the city is reshaped, when it is centered upon the Lord, God himself will provide for all her needs. When God's people seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus says, then all these things will be added to you. Dear friends, that promise is for us too, isn't it? That promise is for us. It's what Jesus said to us. Jesus spoke this, that if we seek his kingdom first, that all these things will be added unto us. When we choose to live a God-centered life, when we choose to pursue his kingdom instead of our own agenda, the Lord meets our needs. Verse 15. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side, on the east, on the south, on the west. And so Ezekiel is told the boundaries of, of this new land of Israel, boundaries that match what, basically what God uh, promised Moses back in Numbers chapter 34. And the land now being defined, it's time for it to be distributed to the tribes. So verse 21, so you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners, the travelers who reside among you and have had children among you and they shall be to you as native born children of Israel. You see, this isn't just an ethnic or a national thing where everyone else is, is left out in the cold but rather for any who will come, for any who will submit themselves to God, they are welcome. They are welcome. The door is open. As Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter three, there in verse six, he says, here's the mystery. Here's the thing we never would have guessed. Here's the thing that we never could have imagined, that the Gentiles get to be fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's the thing Paul says that we never would have guessed, that God has welcomed all, including us. Including us. He has welcomed us into his family. And chapter 48, <laughs> verse 1 these are the names of the tribes beginning in the northern extreme. Dan, they get one portion and adjoining or next to the territory of Dan, Asher, one portion, and then Naphtali, one portion, and then Manasseh and Ephraim. Now remember, in, back in verse 13, it said that Joseph would get a double portion of the land. This is his double portion. Remember, Joseph is the father of Manasseh and Ephraim. They are not sons of Israel. They are grandsons of Israel. But when Israel, when Jacob and his sons joined Joseph in Egypt, remember that? Joseph goes to Egypt, he ends up in prison, then he ends up ruling over Egypt. They come during a famine, he rescues them. All of Israel goes to live there in Egypt for a season. And Jacob, also called Israel, calls Joseph to him. And he says, bring me your sons. And he adopts them. He takes them as his own. He says, these are now my sons and they will have an inheritance amongst you. Okay, so... Manasseh and Ephraim, they are considered 
tribes within Israel. Sometimes they are brought together under the name of Joseph. Sometimes they are represented individually. Then Reuben, then Judah. And again, this is obviously a literal regathering of, of, of actual people, of, of the tribes of Israel. And the tribes are distributed above and then we will see below that central holy region. Verse 8, adjoining the territory of Judah. So you have this, this stack of tribal allotments coming down through uh, the nation. And then after Judah comes this holy territory with the sanctuary in the midst of it, the portion that will be set apart for the Lord. And again, this holy area provides space, verse 10, for the priests with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of their portion. Verse 13, for the Levites. Verse 15, for the city, uh, both for a place for dwelling and open country that, verse 18, the workers from the city from all the tribes of Israel shall farm. And then verse 21, what remains on both sides of the holy portion and the property of the city shall belong to the prince. So it's the same layout that, that he showed us before. There's a place for everyone. There's a place for the Levites. There's a, a, a place for the faithful sons of Zadok, the, the priests. There, there's a place for the temple and for the national city and even a place for the prince. Verse 23, as for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad. And then the southern boundary of the nation is laid out for us. Verse 29, this is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And these are their portions, declares the Lord God. So all the tribes are represented. God will keep his promise to regather them as a nation all centered on, all gathered around God himself. In verse 30, these shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, Joseph. Now here, notice, Joseph is listed. Manasseh and Ephraim are not. But Levi is included here. There, there are always going to be 12 tribes presented but, but the way they formulate those 12 will differ at times. You usually, usually, if Joseph is listed and Manasseh and Ephraim are tucked inside of him, then Levi will be included. But when it's an allotment of land, the, the Levites were not given land. And so Ephraim and Manasseh are split out from Joseph. They both got an allotment of land. So it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. There's always a reason for who's listed uh, on the east side, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan. Uh, on the south side, gates for Simeon, Isaacar, and Zebulun. And on the west, gates for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And so God has regathered his people. Now look at the last sentence. In this whole book, we've been aiming at this last sentence for nine months. Here is where God wants to take his people. This is the goal. This is the objective. This is what God is after. And the name of the city from that time shall be, the Lord is there. God dwelling with his people. Dear friends, God created us for relationship with himself. Do you understand that? 
Do you know that? When you sit in the dark of the night and you wonder, why am I even here? You've left no mark. There's no foundation named after you, or at least not that we know of. Why are you even here? Because God, Almighty, the creator of the universe, desires to be in relationship with you. Our sin broke that relationship. And so God sent his prophets to, to show us our sin, to expose our need. Ezekiel declared God's judgment against that sin, against his people who had rebelled against him. Their sin, it, it mattered. It, it was destructive. It destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. It brought about the departure of God's glory from his temple. But Ezekiel told us as well of the promise of God that one day things would be different. That one day, because of Jesus, because of the Messiah, because of the cross, everything would be different because Jesus took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He makes us different. He changes us. He transforms us. Remember that promise that Ezekiel gave us from the Lord? There in Ezekiel 36, God says this, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is God's solution to our problem. His people rebelled, and because of their rebellion, he had to judge their sin. And we too have rebelled, haven't we? And God will have to judge our sin, but he does not want to destroy us. And so he sent the Savior. And Christ paid the penalty for our sin upon the cross. And he offers us a new heart. And he offers to put his spirit within us and to put upon us his righteousness. Can you wrap your mind around that? Not only forgiven, but transformed. Uh, there, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way, that we are to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And instead, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Dear friends, we are invited to draw near to God. But as James says, we must wash our hands. We must turn from sin. The message of Ezekiel is this. Sin matters. Holiness matters. But it isn't left up to you. He has done all the work. He has done what is necessary. He is willing to give you a new heart and to put his spirit within you so that you can walk in, live in, abide in not only his presence, but his righteousness. That we might be people who are changed and that we might be those who experience the thing that we were made for. That we would live in and we would experience the very presence of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this morning, for this time together. And God, I pray that we would, we would comprehend and we would receive the message of Ezekiel. God, that we would see our sin.
God, we would see the way that you dealt with the sin of your people. We would understand this is no joke. This is no light thing. This is serious to you. You will judge sin. But you have made payment for us. If we'll receive it. If we will repent. If we will turn from our sin. If we will submit ourselves to you. You will not only give us a new heart. You will not only pour out your spirit upon us and within us. Unthinkably, Lord, you will put your righteousness upon us. Change us, God. May we be those who very obviously belong to you. Who have been shaped by you. And God, may you use us in this world to go out as your ambassadors, your representatives, telling how you have saved us, opening the way, offering the way to those who have not yet turned to you. Work in us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.